Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to be loving covering today Hosea and Joel. Just a quick program note before we get started. Dr. Bob is going to have to leave a few minutes in. So, with that in mind, here we go. Today we're going to talk about Hosea and Joel, but we are turning the page from the major prophets to the minor prophets now. And to do that, I thought this would be a handy chart. Uh, and you have this the PDF that goes out in the email afterwards, just as a reference. But it's a, a little chart that has all the prophets. And if you're listening to this just purely on audio, what you have on the screen is a little table, a chart that uh, shows all the prophets of the Bible divided into three time periods, pre-exile prophets, exile prophets, and post-exile prophets. And then within those three categories, divided by the audience to which they were speaking. So, for example, in the first row, pre-exile prophets to Israel, the North Kingdom, would be Amos and Hosea. And all the prophets on the right side are listed, the ones in bold are the major prophets, the ones that are not bold are the minor prophets, as it should be. The minor prophets, as you know, are not minor because they're less important, they're just minor because they books are shorter in length. That's the real distinction between major and minor prophets. Hosea and Joel are red solely because those are the two that I'm going to be covering with you today. Now, they appear in your Bible as Hosea and Joel, but I'm going to do Joel and Hosea. I'm going to reverse the order, and I'm doing that on purpose because... Hosea really is the main event this morning. And Hosea 3 in particular is the main event. And so we're going to build up and lead up to Hosea 3. And if we did anything after Hosea 3, it would be very anticlimactic. And also, there's a lot in Joel. There's a lot to learn from him. And I don't want to give it short shrift and rush through the end. So we're going to start with Joel, spend a little time in Joel, but not too much. I don't want to get bogged down in Joel, because I really want to get to Hosea, because that's really the main event this morning. So, a few things on Joel. What we're talking about today is what makes Joel unique. Joel's uh, treatment of the day of the Lord, God's response to repentance, and Joel talking about the future day of the Lord. Some questions that the book of Joel raises that I think are really radical that can distract us from the key takeaways that the book has for us. So, that's what we'll be covering in about 20 25 minutes. So, what makes Joel unique? We do know that the name Joel means Jehovah is God. There's very little else we know about the prophet Joel himself. It's not clear who Joel was. He does start the book by saying, Joel, the son of Pethuel. But that's a little help because we really don't know who Pethuel was either. Uh, and uh, the other thing is that we don't know when it was written. Uh, now, the table you saw a minute ago is written, some people say it was written in the around 850 BC. Could be. So the most prophetic books will start with some reference to kings. But Joel doesn't mention any kings. He mentions Jerusalem and the temple, but no kings. So by contrast, the first verse of Joel says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of heaven. And then he launches right into it. Hosea, by contrast, Hosea 1 verse 1, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beery, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That gives you a lot of historical context. You can place Hosea pretty accurately, but not Joel. We really don't know. And the thing about Joel is some commentators say he was very early, one of the earliest prophets. He was a contemporary of Elijah, some say. Others say, well, he does seem to quote lots of other books of the Bible. He quotes Exodus, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Nahum, Isaiah, Amos, and Malachi. If he's quoting from them, he's probably one of the last prophets that arose. Now we say, well, he's quoting from them. He doesn't say, well, as it says in the book of Malachi, next one, or as, as from Exodus chapter 34, it's the fifth, he just uses the same words. So you can, some commentators might say, well, he's just inspired by the Holy Spirit to use the same words in phraseology as this other verse written somewhere else. That's it. But he does seem to quote from a lot of his other books. And the thing about it is that he, he seems to understand that you already know what Israel sin is. He doesn't seem to go into detail about it. So, for example, if you read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, people say, what is it that we've done this so bad? What's our sin? 
Uh, and Jericho has to go outside. What you said is, I'll blast you with this, 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 this. You've done these things. And Joel doesn't do that. He doesn't make any direct accusation. He assumes you know. So it sounds like he's writing, understanding that you already know the other books of the Bible. And you already know what Israel said is. He's, I know you can tell you, you already know what it is. Had your own. For purposes no longer your huckleberry, is it not also logically possible that Matthew, Ezekiel, etc., are quoting from Joel? Could be. Okay, Joel talks about, and the major theme of Joel, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is referred to as a past day of the Lord that had just happened. In chapter 1, he talks about a swarm of locusts that came through. And the commentators say it doesn't sound like he's talking about a hypothetical swarm of locusts. Sounds like a real event that took place. In other words, he doesn't say, well, imagine what a swarm of locusts would be like. It would be horrible were it to happen. He says, when the locusts came, it was horrible, right? And it was. And he talks about in some detail uh, about the, the, the locusts, the devastation they read. And when he does, when he talks about the locusts, he says, that was the day of the Lord. That locust was not just a natural event. It was God's judgment on us for our sin. And it would have evoked some kind of memory for them of the plagues of Egypt, where God had God's judgment on their enemies. Only this time, the judgment is coming on them. It, the storm of locusts was not just a natural event; it was God's judgment on us, His people. What it does is He calls for repentance. So, for example, in chapter one, verse thirteen, He says, "Put on sackcloth, you priests, and more. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God." And then he seems to include himself in repentance. He doesn't say, oh, you need to repent, I need to repent too. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says, To you, Lord, I call. The fire has devoured the pastures and the wilderness and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. So he calls for repentance. But the day of the locust was bad, the day of the Lord, the day of the locust was bad, all of that was just a foreshadowing, a metaphor for the future day of the Lord that's to come. And in chapter 2, he talks about a different kind of locust. He said, these locusts are armed. The locusts were just a representation of an invading army, marauding down the soldiers, not just a band, a whole army that's going to take over everything. And he describes them in great detail. They don't break ranks, they swarm over this thing, they climb to the windows, they devastate everything in their path. It's horrible. So in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Before them, the army, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. Uh, and the thing about this army that's odd is it's God's army. He says, the Lord thunders, this is chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. So in context, uh, at this time, the, uh, the people then would have said, oh, the day of the Lord is a wonderful thing. The day of the Lord is something to look forward to. The day of the Lord is going to be the time when God comes and finally wreaks vengeance on all our enemies. That's certainly the way that Jews in Palestine and Jesus is kind of thought about the day of the Lord. Sometime in the future, God's going to come here and bring him aside and wipe out these Romans to get rid of them. He's going to bring judgment on our enemies. And Joel reverses that. He says, the day of the Lord is coming. It's going to be an army. It's going to be a concrete army array. It's going to be God's army. It's not going to be vanquishing our enemies. It's going to be attacking us. Very different focus. God's judgment is coming on us. And so he says, the day of the Lord is a beautiful thing to be looking forward to. Chapter 2, verse 11, the day of the Lord is dreadful. Who can endure? And the proper response to that is repentance. Repentance. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. This famous verse, rend your hearts, not your garments. I don't want you to go through the motions, say, okay, okay, I get it. Army's coming. What do I need to do to avoid that calamity? But I want you to avoid your heart, rend your hearts and not your garments. And why should you repent? And this is one where he quotes Exodus, or maybe Exodus quotes him. For he is gracious, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. That's why you should repent. Then the second half, chapter two, it's like a long poem that talks about this. And so if we get a microphone, Rex, if you just you're close, if you just read from the screen, I'd appreciate that. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, and will have pity on his people. 
the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. So it's interesting, so God is saying, this is a poem of restoration. I am going to restore you. I'm going to bring great things, right? Grain, new wine, and oil. But then there's a reversal, an about face in verse 20. I will remove the northern army far from you. I will drive the other the army out. Wait, I thought it was his army. Well, it was some other army that was being used as God's instrument of judgment, but now God is saying, I will drive them out. And then, this section in chapter 2, verse 28, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on them all the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if those words sound familiar to you, they should. Because these words, this exact passage from chapter 2, verse 28, to the first half of chapter, verse 32, are quoted by Peter in the second chapter of Acts on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes down and they're all speaking in tongues and everyone says, you guys are all drunk. And Peter gets up and says, we're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. He says, this whole thing happened exactly as was prophesied in the prophet Joel. He puts this exact passage. And when he gets to the end, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says some other things, too. Now, everyone's cussing him. 3,000 people come to repentance and come to the Lord, and the Christian church is founded on the day of Pentecost. So the prophet Joel was writing these words, perhaps primarily for the day of Pentecost, to establish the Christian church. But he also says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, and that didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. So he's talking maybe about the day of Pentecost, but also about the events, future events that are to come. So, summarize chapter two. God responds to repentance. God will take the locusts, restore the land, bring the divine presence to the people. And then in chapter three, the writer follows that exact pattern: the people, locusts, restore the land, bring the divine presence, and writes three poems about exactly what that means. Uh, so, for example, when he says, "I'm going to bring my divine presence to the people," in chapter three, verse seventeen, he says, "Then you will know that I am Lord your God." Dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. So that's the book of Joel. Now, questions. This little book, three chapters long, raises some interesting questions. Let me let me beat you to the punch before you do before you answer your questions. I've got some questions of this of my own for the reader. Our tragedy is always God's judgment. Tragedy is always God's judgment. The locusts came and Joel said, these locusts are God's tragedy. If you don't answer, by the way, don't shout it out. <laughs> You'll see a mic on it. Our tragedy is always God's judgment. And the locusts come and, and Joel does the fairies are God's judgment. Are we responsible for collective sin or just individuals? That's a tough one. That's a good question. I like to think I'm responsible for my individual sin, but I'm not responsible for anybody else. The judgment here, God says, God says, I'm going to judge these nations and attack Israel. What if you're in that nation, you say, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I was going to add nothing to that. I don't know what they You can blame the souls. They went in and they didn't have nothing to do with that. I'm going to be responsible for my individual sins. How dare you blame me for collective sins of the group that I belong to? I don't like them. Which is it? Now, Israel's specific prophecies applicable to us. And the one uh, spot around Joel getting ready for this, even through the whole thing, he said, Look, why do you Gentiles do this? Is anything to do with you? This is a prophecy about Israel. All the references are to Israel. There are specific geographical references to Israel. Israel's going to have been overtaken militarily, will be overtaken in the future in some Armageddon, and then God's going to restore the land of Israel. Why do you Gentiles insert yourself in this story? And then, which future battles prophesied here? Which is it? Is it the Syrian conquest, the Babylonian conquest, the Roman conquest? Maybe it's a future I'm going to get, which is it? So we could spend a lot of time talking about all these questions because they're really interesting. I think they're all distractions. They're all distractions. They're rabbit holes we can go down. It will take us away when I think the Lord asked for us. The key takeaway is 
from the book of Joel that I want to get to on the next page. But before we leave the distractions behind, let me just rattle off a couple things on this. Are tragedies always God's judgment? Absolutely not. That's what the book of Job in particular is here to teach us. Tragedies are not always God's judgment. Can they be? Yes. But unless you're a prophet, you'll never know. Job could say that most believers were God's judgment because he was a prophet. Unless you're a prophet, you're not in a position to say it. Are we responsible for collective sin or individual sin? Yes and yes, both. Are Israel specific prophecies applicable to us? Maybe not, but there's still a lot we can learn. What future Baptist cross prophesy here probably changes? Now, with those quick answers to dispense with, some other questions if you're not nervous. Give this pat to you for those on Thank you, Pat. You know, you talked about the form of locusts, and in chapter one, verse four, you see these four successive forms to show that the destruction is complete. But one of the great things in Joel is two twenty-six. Where the prophet says, I, speaking in the name of God, will restore to you the years of the city. So, when God disciplines, he does it for a reason, but he can always restore those. And of course, you've already covered, there was repentance before that. That's That's what, that's how you get to some semblance of restoration. Well, that's good. That actually came to one of my key takeaways on this. Jim Love. So I, I really love this chapter too. I thought it was amazing to show the character and the heart of God. And so I, my question, sort of rhetorical here is, what is God like? And he says, this is what I'm like. He says, you know, when you're repenting, don't tear your clothing in your grief. Tear your heart, return to the Lord, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love. Eager to relent and not punish. This is what he's like. It's like, I can't wait to get back at those people. No. He's eager to relent. Right. He's eager to forgive, to restore, to reconcile. And so that, that affected me this week as I read. And I had two relationships that were kind of on the aisles this week. And I'm like, wait a minute. God is eager to forgive. I think it takes me to It just shows some eagerness. To reconcile and restore, because that's what he's like. That's good. He's deep. That's, that's great. That's great. If you don't mind, I'll just move on to this because some of this I think is going to be covered in the next page I'm going to talk about. We're going to stop for a second. It's another bit of the comments. What's the point? If these little things I said here are all distractions, then what's the point of the book? Key takeaways human sin and failure wreak devastation in our world. It's a fallen world, it's fallen world because of us, because of our sin. Judgment is the natural consequence of living outside of God's will. People say, why does God judge? Why is God an end to judge? Why is there judgment? And usually the answer is, it's because of us. In other words, to give you a simple analogy to unpack this, I'm understanding. If I, I'm a free man, I make my own decisions, nobody tells me what to do. So if I buy a car, and the design of the car says the gasoline goes over there, oil goes over there, no one tells me what to do. I'm going to put oil over here and gasoline over here. If my car breaks down, I say, why is the designer of this car judging me? And the, child, the designer of the car will say, I'm not judging you. You're an idiot. You're the one who's bringing havoc in your own life. Why are you blaming me, the designer? I designed the perfect car. You screwed it up. That little analogy helps me understand the idea of God's judgment. Secondly, God is going to use you and say to accomplish his purposes. I'll bet you all those nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, they all thought they were making free will decisions to attack Israel. And they were. Free will decisions. They were sinful decisions. Yes, they were sinful decisions to attack Israel. And yet God wove it together as part of his plan. It's like in, in Genesis when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And then in Genesis, Joseph looks at him and says, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You made a sinful, free will decision to sell me into slavery. Was it sin? Yes, it was. And yet God used that sin as part of his plan. It's like Judas betraying Jesus. Is that a simple free will decision? Absolutely. Did God use it as part of his plan of redemption? Absolutely. So even the simple decisions of his other nations are going to be used by God to accomplish his purpose, and yet he's called into judgment. They are still accountable for these decisions. Third, God longs to show mercy to those who acknowledge and confess sin, which is kind of the way they do it. The key message of the book is repentance. 
If you start getting lost on the, you know, which battle is it, was the Assyrians? If you read it and you start asking those kinds of questions, you are looking at it as if one of the books is trying to promise. Blues. God left this little trail there. If I'm really astute, I can, I can see through that, I can figure it out. And that's the way you're thinking, that's what you think the major thrust of the book is. That it's not, it's about repentance. God says, this is the response that I'm looking for. And all of that should lead to hope. Not only that God will one day defeat evil in our world, but also inside of all of us, and someday make all things new. Now, that is a great message of hope, but how? How is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Because this is the next words I'm going to put on the screen are read because I really want to remember these. I think this is the point of the book that if you forget everything else, remember this. The locusts and the army illustrated the vastness of God's wrath for sin. We vastly underestimate our sin problem. We vastly underestimate God's reaction to our sin problem. You say, oh, yeah, I didn't begin. I'm just sorry. Here, go ahead. Go ahead. It's not the risk. All right. There. I'll get back to the And we, we take it so casually and so lightly. And God says, do you want to know what the proper, proportional response is to your sin? It is utter devastation. A locust that just came through, they destroyed everything. Like a variety of that comes to you and just destroys everything. That is the proper, proportional response to your sin. And we underestimate it. We take it so lightly. We don't think that our sin is that fast. And God is not. And this book is saying we have needed a better understanding of our sin problem by understanding what it does to God and his response to it. So, how does God resolve that? Because he's also merciful and kind and just, right? What's he going to say? He's going to say, well, okay, I got angry. I got really angry back there. I got carried away. Bad joke. I made a bad joke. I'm sorry. I calmed down now. Now I will restore you to peace. In other words, in some phases, God's going to be angry, and then that subsides, and later, he's loving. So that, that relationship with God is wrong. In other words, how can God be more loving and just at exactly the same time? How can he say, I am filled with love for you, I will restore you, I will bless you, the kindness that you were talking about. But at the same time, never let go of his justice. The answer, of course, is we all know is that someone had to take a full force of that wrath for us. The only way this is possible is substitutionary atonement. The full blast, the full force, all of that wrath for sin, the devastation, that should have come on us justly and rightly and unfortunately for our sin problem, all fell on and us, for us, in our place, on our behalf. And that, there's a summary, Jesus won the battle, so God's justice will be fulfilled and we can be restored. And that is the gospel of control. With that, let's just take one or two questions, think, do you want to say something, and then let's move on to Jose. I move. I like Dan said that he's he's a huckleberry. I think that's really good. Hope he's a huckleberry. The point I was going to make is that the day of the Lord is a very important concept. But you know what we see in these prophets like Hosea and Joel is what's quoted in the New Testament is what's very very important that we can take out of that. What Jesus said in, in Luke twenty four in the road to Emmaus. That's what was presented in the New Testament. I think it's all very consistent when you think about it. Right? That's the, those, are, those are the important points to take out of it. But I think the day of the Lord, you know, I was reading Luke, in Luke 17, Jesus says to the apostles and disciples, you're waiting for one of the days of the Lord, right? Because judgment is a very important concept. And I think God, one of the reasons God created days the way he did Twenty-four-hour segments, periods, as we can judge each day, do a post-mortem after the day, see what we need to include. And what you said about repentance, I think, is is, is really important. We should repent every day. You know, not not to be sin conscious, like we're such miserable sinners. We are, but, but that should we shouldn't be condemned by that. So it's one of these deals where we're the worst sinners, but we get we're so loved yeah. by grace. So it's it's both, right? That's right. So it's, there's a humility to it, a meekness to it. And if you get that part, but I think judgment is so important because, you know, he says in Lamentations, 
who has spoken unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Yeah. So God does all that. It's all His providence. Yeah. It's all, right. all these storms, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, God's providence. He's in the middle of it. He does it all. Yeah. Right? He's in, in, in Isaiah it says He creates, and you know, the King James says, I create evil. In, in the modern versions of ESP, it says, I create a plan. Right? He does all. What's the purpose? That's what we have to explore. Is it judgment on us? Yes. You know, you and I have talked before about if he judges New York, right? There's so much sin in New York. There's so many good Christians in there, right? But that doesn't mean it, that, that he's not going to judge. And he judged Jerusalem. There were Christians in Jerusalem. Christians got out. That's right. But God's judgment, I, I, I don't think we understand it. I think you get on it. We don't understand the enormity of our sin. But, Yes, and thank you. Good, uh, very good to give end on that. We don't understand the enormity of our sin. The one thing you said about give God gave us 24 days, 24 hour periods to think about our sin every day. First of all, for us, His mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. We can say, Lord, you forgive my sins. Every day I confess and I repent, you forgive my sins. Praise the Lord for that. But if you don't have that, if you're not in Christ, every day is judgment day. Every day. You gotta stand and fall on your own two feet with your guidance and your own works every day. If you don't have Christ, all the judgment comes on you every day. Hosea. And what I've done with this is Tim Keller preached an incredible sermon on the book of Hosea. Uh, just on the first three chapters, it's in a note here, a footnote. It's called the True Bridegroom. It's available for free download. I highly recommend you get that. The True Bridegroom is way better than anything I'll say today. But I'm gonna use Keller's outline. For the first three chapters, and then I'm also going to use some of the, some of his points, but I've added on to quite a bit. So uh, what he would say is Hosea tells you that our relationship with God is like a marriage. Secondly, our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. And then thirdly, how God heals marriage and what it costs. If that sounds like it comes from the sermon, that's because it does. Okay? Now, I got an experiment to do, and before we get into the Bible. I have a reading from popular culture, and I'm, I'm genuinely curious about this. I'm going to put the lyrics to a song on the screen. This was a rock blues song that came out in 1970, so give me clues already. I really want to see how many of you recognize the song. Like I said, I'm genuinely curious about this. So if you recognize the song, don't shout it out. Don't say it out loud. Just raise your hand quietly if you recognize the song. We'll see who, who can get this in no notes. Okay? Here we go. 1970. Think about it. I want to tell you about the girl I love. Ooh, my, she looks so fine. She's the only one that I've been dreaming of. Maybe someday she will be online. You got one? want to tell her that I love her so. I thrill her with every touch. I need to tell her she's the only one I really love. Okay, we got two. Three. Okay, to this point, four. To this point, it's five. All right, anyone else? Okay, that's helpful. That's great. I'm going to So, to uh, um, so this point, it's a sweet little love song. Right? It's a sweet little love song. And then he sings in a chorus for the first time. It takes a really dark turn. says, I got a woman all, all day. I got a woman she won't be true now. I got a woman staying drunk all the time. I got a little woman. I said, I got a little woman that she won't be true. Any more hands? Any else recognize that? A few more. Just so you know, my preteen suspicions were confirmed because I Googled it in advance of this talk to ball all day and use the free program. I, I thought so when I was a preteen listening to this for the first time. Thankfully, in 1970, they had a little more discretion. They wrote song lyrics. Now they will be much more explicit. But uh, they use that euphemism to talk about something wants to sleep around all day. I got a woman, she won't be true. Let's see if any of you get this. This is the second verse. But Sunday morning when we go down to church, see the men folks standing in line. They say they come to pray to the Lord. When I heard that when I was a teenager, I thought, oh, it's really sweet. He's got a reference to church going in the sky. <laughs> That's so wonderful. It's something we expect out of this family's movies. And then how the Lord saying, Can't be saying these guys look all nice, they're all dressed up for church, they're all eyeing my girl. Maybe they're sleeping. 
In the evening, when the sun is sinking low, everybody's with the one they love. I walk the town, he was searching all around, looking for my sweet corner of the world. So she's either sneaking around all over the town, or she's a prophet, a street corner girl. And then the final part of the, the end is seeing that way out. Hey, hey, what can I do? I got a woman, she can be true though. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hear what I say? I got a woman, whoa. whoa. This is Led Zeppelin, 1970. And if you had gone to Led Zeppelin in 1970, or actually today, if you went to Robert Plant or Jimmy Page, and you said, you realize that you sang out loud the book of Hosea. <laughs> they would say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and no idea. This is the book of Hosea right there. You can enjoy it right there. That is the book of Hosea. In a style of our song. And guys, I wanted to say this in kind of a cutesy, cozy way because this song is ample. Because my guess is that some of you have gone through this, a little unfaithful. And if you haven't gone through this, you almost certainly know someone who has. And it's no laughing matter. I know four. I know four guys who have gone through this, dealing with their, what they love. And it's so agonizing painful. And that's what Hosea is all about. So Hosea, God says our relationship with him is like a, a marriage. And it's not a subtle message. It comes out right away at the beginning of the book. As soon as you start reading the book of Hosea, he says to God said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flavored harlotry forsaking the Lord. You don't have to guess what the book of Hosea is all about. You don't have to read the whole thing and look back and say, ah, that's a religious God just tells you right up front. He says to Hosea, I'm not going to go marry an unfaithful woman. She's going to break your heart. And I'm doing it because the people are unfaithful to me and they broke broken heart. And the point is that you are supposed to see this and understand that God says, you must understand me as your husband, not just as your king, who I am, not just as your master, not even just as your friend, you must understand me as your husband. And that's actually not a human title unique just to Hosea. Isaiah 54 says, as a verse that says, your maker is your husband. And Jeremiah says, I was a husband to them, declared the Lord. God does not come to Hosea and say, just like Isaiah and Jeremiah, I want you to tell the people that I'm a husband to them, and I want you to live it out. Your whole life is going to be a demonstration project. For this message, you're going to live this. You're going to feel it's like you betray. Just like I do. Now, how is our relationship with God like a marriage? These are three points uh, straight from Keller's sermon. I'll amplify them a little bit. First of all, marriage must be your number one priority. Just like our relationship with the Lord, marriage must be your number one priority. If you go to your wife and you say, honey, I want you to know you're right there or toward the top. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got my job, no one else got kids, uh, and I've got some plan for the future, but there's a law, and just the law itself. It takes a lot of time, but you're up easily in the top five. You, of course, your marriage falls apart. Marriage has to be your number one priority. We all, you hear the guy who can joke all the time, happy wife, happy life, and guys who say that kind of roll their eyes and joke, they shouldn't, it's true. Their marriage must be your number one priority if you want a healthy marriage, and God says, save my relationship with you. Marriage, secondly, marriage is a relationship of intimacy. You can hide lots of things from other people. You can hide your temper, your reactions, you can hide your gut. You can't hide from your spouse. Your spouse sees through all that stuff. So maybe it's supposed to be a relationship of intimacy. And God is saying, I don't want you to know me from afar. I don't want you to just know about me. I want you to experience me. I want to have an intimate relationship with you. And thirdly, marriage is a relationship of life-changing potency. Everyone else can think that you're a failure. Your wife says you are a success. It has the power to transform you and change you. Everyone else can say something about you. And says, no, that's not true. I see the real you. That has the real power to change you. And when, when the way Keller brings this out, just to kind of quote from more, he says, what God's trying to do is that both the moment when the bridegroom stands at the altar and looks down the aisle, and the bride comes into view for the first time in her wedding dress. And the heart just skips a beat. 
And the, the groom just says, I just I want to run down the aisle, sweep you off your feet, take you in my arms, lay down my life for you. That's the way God looks at us. And if you, if, seriously, if you came in this morning and you feel like God is my primary paradigm for God, He is my king. And I've done again. Lord, I'm so sorry that you're down again. I know it. I'm trying to be a better subject tomorrow. I should let you down again. The understanding God as your husband is transformative. And it's supposed to be. The, the idea that God has an aesthetic experience looking at you. To understand that God looks at you the way a bride looks at his bride and says, when I see you, my heart seems to beat. I'm so enraptured with you. I'm so enamored with you. I'm so in love with you. That has the power to transform your life. It's not just that sort of what we say, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's meant to be this kind of relationship. But that's, a, that's what it's supposed to be. Our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. That's, that's where Jose, the book of Hosea comes in. It's God says, take her to chapter 1, verse 2, take her to yourself as a adulterous wife. He's going to be unfaithful to you and to your Now, why would God do that? You see that there are a couple of reasons. One for the benefit of Hosea personally. They say, you're a prophet, and most prophets know about me. I'm going to let you, Hosea, and let the other prophets experience something about me and my nation. The other prophets didn't get it. You're going to understand me in a way that all the prophets can't. There's not going to live. By the way, let's not refer to this. Any of you who belong to this personally, you've got to lay out, perhaps, of the rest of us, because you understand something about the nation God, how he feels more than the rest of us. That was Hosea for Hosea's benefit. What about Gomer? Gomer is the name of his wife. What about Gomer for her benefit? God might have said, you know, for you, Gomer, I want to understand what it's like and transformative love come into your life. And the power that can change you. It's so Gomer, for them personally, you can see that. And, and they, they have a family together. They have three kids together. And the names are interesting. I was being the second, the second one is called Not My Loved One. And the third one. It's just, in Hebrew, it's translated a couple ways, but it can be translated just not mine. And my version said, it said, not my people. Because then it can actually respond to that. this one, not my people, because these are not my people. So can you imagine in the whatever delivery room they have at the time, the third one, Gomer gets word the third one, they look at Jose and say, what do you want to keep the care? He says, I got a name for it, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> And that tells you, and it's all through chapter two, Gomer never stopped being faithful. Gomer, she started off that way and never stopped breaking his heart and, and cheating on So in chapter two, verse two, there's just poetry about Chapter two, two, verse two, now it's like God speaking and reflecting on this. But chapter two, verse two says, plead with your mother. So it's almost like Hosea talking to his children. Plead with your mother, plead. She is not my wife. And I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look of her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as fair as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. Could it anger the storm? That's chapter 2, verse 3. The next verse, God will turn to the children. Upon our children also, I will have no mercy, because they are children of boredom. For their mother has played the war. She who can see them has acted shameful. That's chapter 2. And then by chapter 3, she is with another woman. She was something else. To be displayed with me. So what God is saying is, Hosea, the whole book of Hosea is here to tell us we have two problems. First of all, we don't understand. God says the whole book is written, so you have empathy. The whole book is, a, is about empathy. I want you to put yourself in my shoes. I want you to feel what it's like to feel the way I feel. And what God is saying is when you, if you just think of me as a subject, a king, you'll say, when I break the king's rules, the king is angry. And when a slave to a master, that's your paradigm for your relationship with God, you'll say, when I break the master's rules, the master gets angry. But when you realize I'm your husband, you understand I'm not just getting angry. Sin is not just breaking God's rules, it is breaking his 
So in this role, you saw the reaction of God saying the proper just response to your sin is complete devastation, unbelievable anger. And now in Hosea, you see God saying the proper response to your sin is not just anger, but to break my heart. And he said, like, say, if you want if you want an image of what it feels like to be, think about your life when it comes to what Because that's the reaction. So we don't understand God. And secondly, we don't understand ourselves. Because as men, you read this book and we say, oh, wow, it must be tough to be Hosea. Think about what it would be like to be Hosea. If God were to call you to say, go marry a prostitute, wow, that would be hard. I'm not trying to do that. And you start reading it that way, you are inserting yourself in the narrative as Hosea. And some of you are supposed to have empathy for God. You're supposed to see it through those eyes. What would it be like to be Hosea? What would it be like to be God? God wants it to be God. But we are not Hosea in this story. In this narrative, Hosea is God. We are Gomer. We are Gomer. We are the unfaithful wife. There's a little theological controversy at the beginning of the book that I skipped over. And the theological controversy is, was Gomer unfaithful on the day they were married? And the text says, go marry a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. But there are commentators who say that can't possibly be right. She must have been pure and innocent on the day they were married because that would sound like God was commanding one of his prophets to enter into a simple relationship. So that can't be the interpretation. I know it says that, but it can't really mean that. And the problem with that is that whole interpretation is twofold. One is, it's not a sin to marry so much sinner. Because if that's the case, none of our lives can be married to any of us. Right? It's not a sin to enter the relationship of someone who's a sinner. Secondly, that would gut the whole meaning of the book. The whole purpose of the book is Romans 5 8. God demonstrates his own love towards this, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, we are not pure as a different soul, God does, and then fell into the ancient poetry. We were messed up, sinful people from the get go. We were dead in our trespasses. And yet God almost said Put yourself in no shoes. Gomer. Gomer's the picture of complete sexual addiction. Gomer can't help us. There's a verse, there's a verse in Greg spoke about Jeremiah a couple of weeks ago. There's a verse in Jeremiah where people say, we, we know it's we, we love foreign gods. It's no use. It's no use. Can't help myself. It's just no use. I love foreign gods. I can't stay away. And that's that is a picture of addiction. She can't have herself. Tim. One quick addition. Harlotry is not a sin that would exclude a woman from being married, from a man marrying a woman. So Rahab and Solomon as an example. Adultery is the sin that, for, that excludes a woman from being married because only just punishment for adultery is stoning. So death is punishment for adultery. That's not the punishment for adultery. Good. Okay. So I think that also takes away from the alternative interpretation. So that's not the Okay. So by chapter three, Gomer is enslaved to one of to somebody else. But before we get to that, let's do a quick flyover of the rest of the book. And we'll come back. And then we can Hopefully, I'm a little bit early and take some time to comment some questions. So, chapters one through three are all, all about the prodigal life. The rest of the book is about the prodigal people. And while the first half, the first portion, chapters one through three, is written in terms of a marital relationship, the rest of the white leaders. It's the message of judgment, the indictment, the verdict, the plea, the reply, the crimes, and the judgment. And that's the message of judgment. And then you get the message of restoration at the end of the book. We'll cover this. Really quick, just one or two verses for each one of the sessions. First of all, we go back to chapter 4, verse 6a. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you for being my priest. We don't want this accusation to be true of us. First of all, keep in mind, Jeremiah 9, verse 24. I'm not even most explicit this, that he knows what? And understands me. So it's not just head knowledge, it's understanding me. And that's kind of the point of the book of Hosea. I don't want you just to know me, I want you to understand what it's like to be me. But my people are destroyed for lack, lack of knowledge. And if we're going to plug into worship for this Bible study, for the land of the Lord, this is why we're here. Right? And, and the point of this, by the way, is not that you come Saturday morning for, to, to see a show, to see someone talk about it. 
So the point of this Bible study is that we're all in the Word, all during the week. So if you don't read that, you're reading that. Dr. Lawson says we're reading the Word, grab that, and we're reading the Word in the Word all the time, every day. And we talk about us there. That's one thing. Secondly, by the way, about this Bible study, when you come here, we want you to see, say, um, like I'm not a paid professional, I'm just a guy who works at the bank. So your reaction should be, if some clown like Jim Rasky works at a bank can study the word and understand it, certainly I can do that. Right? That should be your reaction. If lay people like us can get up and say, we can just study and find the word and understand it. It's, it's supposed to be the, uh, the um, epitome of that biblical concept of priesthood of all believers. Amen. And you should look at it and say, shoot, if that guy can do it, I can do this too. You get the word and study it. The empowering, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the big wise counselor. The empowering of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the indictment. The first thing, 5 verse 15, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their will and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And this God saying, I'm afflicting you, but I'm afflicting you for a reason and a purpose to bring you to repentance. That's the indictment of the verdict. Now the plea of Israel. This one is really bittersweet. The beautiful verses. Let's read them together and I'll tell you why. Ch uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Beautiful verse, right? And the next verse is going to be in red because this next verse was for a long time my favorite verse in the whole Bible. I had it on the plaque on my desk in college. So let us know, Isaiah 6 So let us know, let us press on to the name of the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, walking in. So beautiful. A lifetime of pressing on to the name of the Lord. His, his knowing him, the ability to know him is dead certain. He is reliable. He will come to us like the rain. Time of refreshing, like the spring rain, water your Beautiful person, but they're bittersweet, and they're bittersweet because there's really no evidence that there ever was a revival in the northern kingdom. So these were the words of Hosea. He was writing a script for the people. He was saying, "This is what these are the words you are supposed to say. You should be saying, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us, but he will heal us.'" But they didn't. They were supposed to say these words, but they never did. They didn't. That was the plea they were supposed to do. Now the reply of the Lord, for I delight, chapter 6, verse 6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And this is from the New American Standard version of the NIC, it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In the ESV, it says, I desire sin as love and not sacrifice. But you get the idea. God says, I don't want just head knowledge, I want changed life. And there's an old song by Keith Green, uh, some of you might remember, it says, To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. This is what God is saying to us. I don't like the loyalty rather than sacrifice. Why don't you just go through the motions? And the knowledge of God, we the burnt offerings. And Jesus actually quotes this verse twice in Matthew 9 and in Matthew 12. Matthew 9, verse 13 says, But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to righteous. Those sinners. Praise the Lord, that's us. Right? And then to drive all this, to drive this point home, the crimes of Israel, Hosea 7, it's 7 verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart when they wail in their beds. For the sake of rain and new wine, they send themselves. They turn away from me. So you know, they're wailing in their beds, all right. But they're not there wailing because of their circumstance. They're wailing because they're the desire of prosperity and comfort. To have their life fixed. And that brings to mind also no me. He's supposed to be the incident. He asked for what he wants. That's the crimes. Now the prophecy of judgment is a famous verse, but if you wonder where it is in the Bible, here it is. Isaiah 8 verse 7. They stole in, they will reap the world. That's the judgment. So you have the indictment, the verdict, the plea, the reply, the crimes, the judgment. Those are all the message of judgment in Isaiah 4. And after that, the message of restoration. Now that's chapter 11 through 14. I don't want to look at the whole thing. I'm just going to pick out one verse and highlight this for you. I'm doing that for a reason. Isaiah 11 verse 8. 
Listen to the way God feels when he says this. How can I surrender you all this way? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are. And God is saying, this is, again, if you've gone through this, if you know people have gone through this, this is the feeling that I love you, but you're killing me. I love you, but why are you doing this to me? I love you, I hate you at the same time, but I still love you. This is like, look at Hosea 11 verse 8, this is the God of the universe. You know, the anguish of his heart. Like, I'm torn apart inside of you. I'm filled with love, but I'm like justice as well. It's amazing that God would say this. So this whole outline I just gave you is actually from the Bible study model, this legal outline. This another commentator had a different way of looking at it. He did it like this. He said, really, if you look at the whole book of Hosea, you step back, it's judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. It's pattern again and again. It's you, you are you are filled with sin. The land commits harlotry against me. You're filled with slavery, but I love you. But how do you do this to me? But I love you. And that. I went up earlier, I think a long years ago, at the end, they're fading out the singers saying, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. Because that's the way you feel, like the torp inside. I love you, but I want it. Why are you doing this to me? And that's amazing that God himself would feel this way. So, for example, I read that verse earlier in chapter 2, that poem of God's talking about their adultery, and he says, even the children, even the children, I'm mad at them too, but by the end of chapter 2, uh, by the end of chapter 2, verse 23, he named the children. For the children was not my loved one and not my people. Chapter 2, verse 23, he says, I will show my love to the one I call not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. I'm so mad at you. I love you so much. So, all that brings us to Hosea chapter 3. At this point, remember, Gomer is in slavery and she's up for auction. We're going to read it together. It's very short. We're going to open together paragraph by paragraph. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, death and adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raising gates. So I bought her for myself with 15 shekels of silver. And a homer and a half of barley. Okay, so a couple of quick points before we get to the, the real meaning of the passage. First of all, what's up with the racing case? Uh, <laughs> and I got to explain this because if I don't, it becomes a distraction. Like, what's up with the racing case? What is that? The case was very important in the Middle East at that time. Came all all great, Brian put him into the cake. But that also became very important in idol worship. And we would go to Wherever the idols were, you would present the cakes and then consume them as part of the work of false God. Thank you. I think that's exactly right. But I think the reason it's mentioned here is because if it, if it sounds petty here in this text, the way he's mentioning it, I think it's meant to sound petty. In other words, it's like if I said, you left this church and went to another church because they have cupcakes at the service. <laughs> you left for the cupcakes. And, and he's saying, you know, look, you've been disloyal to me. It's this big, huge spiritual issue on a cosmic scale, and you love the priest cakes. Second, she's with someone else, but the writer does not give us a whole lot of detail of who she's with or why. You just know that she's owned by somebody else. Could be another lover, could be her pimp. It could be that she got into debt because oftentimes you're a slave because you got into debt. Maybe she, she was making money from a prostitution, spent money she didn't have, but I always, I always make more money until that ran out. And she's in debt, but either way, I keep the slave. Thirdly, the going rate for slaves in this time is not 15 shekels, it was 30 shekels. But she goes for half price. Now, some people say, well, let me see, there's a thing about bartering. So he has 15 shekels of silver, but he also has a homer and a half of barley. So to get to 30, the homer and a half of barley must have been worth 15 shekels. 15 plus 15, that's not even 30. So that's what the barley means. I don't think so. And some commentators pointed this out, so I got this. The barley is actually significant. It's not a throwaway comment. In Numbers 5.15, it says that barley was an offering for one accused of adultery. Mm -hmm. Numbers 5.15 says the man shall bring his, his wife to the priest. 
and she shall bring as an offering for her one tenth of Eva of Arby, who shall not put oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, no dressing up. For it is a grain offering of jealousy, grain offering of memorial, reminder of the name. The body of significance is with her divinity, saying, We all know she did it. Right? So, when Keller talks about this, he makes an incredible word picture of what that would have been like. We're going to borrow from that. So he says, at this time, the way this auction would have taken place in this culture is going to be taking place right in the public square, right in the marketplace. And, and she would have been standing there, and, and so that all, all the bidders would know what they were getting, she would have been stripped naked, otherwise, people would look over their And she'd be standing there, and you could imagine that if you're in that situation, remember, we're going in the story, right? Now you're going you're to see what you're in the work. And everyone's going to bid on you. The only thing to do is to close your eyes, shut your eyes as hard as you can. And you're going to hear people say things like, for her, two shows. Okay, see. Four times. And you hear a voice, ten shutters. The one who heard that voice and said, That's my husband. That's my husband. What is he doing here? I haven't seen him in years. What is he doing here? Why would he be here bidding on me? And you got to understand that this, these are not huge or troublesome. It's kind of a small town. So in that town, all the gospel, everyone would have known this story. In fact, it's highly likely that the guys that Jose is bidding against also slept with his wife. And so they would look at him and say, you? Don't you know what you did to you? Eleven shots. And he was saying, I know, 12. And they would say, you are some kind of fool. You're some kind of idiot. To bring yourself to the town square and be humiliated like this, 15 shekels. That's it. That's all she's worth. It's not a penny more. And he would say, okay, I'll match you 15 shekels. And I'll throw it to you. And I'm speculating that making this part up. But you could hear the, uh, the guy running off and say, well, you know, we should go take one here. Because they said, yeah, like well, I got Sold and 15 shekels of silver. And he would have gone Jose and put his cloak around him to cover her shame. And then he would have the opportunity to speak to her one on one, maybe for the first time in years. And what do you think he says to her? The next verse tells us, I'll pick up a second. What do you think he says to her? Did he say, Yes, yeah, I'm talking to you. After what you put me through, I own you now. I just bought you. You're my slave now. Now you're going to pay. Now you're just seeing the love. Say that to her. Then speak very tenderly, very compassionate to her. He says, verse 3 Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not pay off. I'm sure you have a man. So I also will be toward you. Deal with addiction, you know, we talk about the drying out period. But he doesn't come here to say, Now you're going to pay. These are both kindness and restoration. And you get that because in the beginning, God says, go again, love a woman. He doesn't say, go again. God is the one who's commanded to say that you're going to live up. But he doesn't say, go again, buy a slave. He says, go again, love a woman. So Isaiah said, okay, you should stay with me for many days. I want to build, I want to rebuild our relationship. I want to build a home with you. I want it like it was. It's not what it's supposed to be. We're going to be together. And then, there's no actual record of Gomer Evans. It's where that story ends. So I'm going to speculate again and go out on the limb. Because I like to think that to be consistent with the whole story of Hosea, the story of restoration, that the two of them did restore their marriage and grew together. Because that's consistent with the whole plot of the book of Hosea. So I like to think, again, pure speculation, that when we're in glory, we're going to the receiving line of the minor prophets. Diana is teaching. Joel is teaching. Dayan is teaching. You're going to read that. You're going to the receiving line of the minor prophets. You come to Hosea and say, Hosea, yes, I remember your story. And chat with Hosea a little bit. I, I'd like to think that after a while, Hosea would say, She had wait right here. She's going to watch the game. Look, go over the office and say, 
don't want to make a story. And the fact that you are here is painful. It's someone like me, screaming like me, like I'd be thirsty. And I think Goma will look at her cousin Isaiah, the former cousin Isaiah, and say, Yeah, you know, Jen, Jose and I were talking about this before you came here. We can't go here for you. So this whole thing is the build up to verse four, because this the verse four, all this whole story about the betrayal, the harlotry, everything else, the words of kindness and tenderness, the words of restoration, verse three, are all about the words of restoration of Israel, verse four. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without hindrance, without sacrifice or sacred pillar. And without ephod or household idols, afterward the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord of God, David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord as was good as in the last days. Finish this up really quickly, because the key to understanding why these are words of reservation is David their king, because nowhere they're ever supposed to worship David their king on any kind of people based on God. It's not coming out to see and worship God and David as the whole party from the throne. This cannot be referenced to David. It's not. It's reference to the true and better David, the son of David, who was a sin on the throne. And we know that. Because right back to the second chapter of Acts, when Peter did that other thing I've been talking about, where he maybe quoted Joel, Peter also says, in writing Acts chapter 2, verse 29, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him not only that he would place on one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, or that his body seemed to carry. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all this. Cuts of the by three thousand of Christ. In Matthew 9, the disciples of John the Baptist come up to Jesus, and they say to him, it's Matthew 9, verse 14. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And in Matthew 9, verse 15, Jesus replies, and says, And Jesus said to Adam, The attendance of the bridegroom cannot mourn, as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The disciples of John must have fallen over, have just fallen over, and said, Yes, I think, I think, you're the husband, Jeremiah, you're the husband. From it, from Isaiah. Girl, you, you are husband of the state. And Jesus would look in the eye and said, You're right. Jesus is the husband. So, to wrap up, he is the bridegroom, he is our husband. He paid the price to buy us from all our slaves. Jesus is the one who left his father's throne above, came into the marketplace down in our world. Takes his cloak of righteousness, puts it around us, covers our shame so that he can bring us home, create our own lives. Jesus will be true to us. And that is the gospel according to Jesus. Okay, pretty much close out of time, but we have a few things, two comments. Tim. Excellent job. Just a couple of quick comments. Chapter 6, at the end of verse 1, it leads into verse 2, which gives us the messianic place. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. That's right. And the, the only other thing that I would suggest we all do is pay attention to chapter 14, verse 9. The very concluding verse which says, Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous will walk in them. But the rebellious are Who is wise? Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. You've given us a lot to think about today in regard to Hosea and what God has said to us. But now the question is, are we wise? Will we apply that knowledge to our lives and walk rightly in that's right. That's, right. That's great. Let him be most close to this, and he knows and understands me. You know what? It's 915. Let's just quickly let's just call the prayer and then bring it back to the thoughts. All right. Let's just let's just um, wait. Wait, Penny, if you have one comment, we go before we close the prayer. Sure. Why don't you do that? It's great. Thank All right. I think it's good to know that this constant 
analogy of idolatry with adultery throughout the Bible, from the beginning to end, all the way through the Revelation. And that is God. But it's interesting how you pointed out in chapter 4 the knowledge of God, because that points to a more positive reference also in the Bible. Then, and I'm thinking of in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we read, I think in verse 12, the son of the Levi did not know God. That same root, they do not God, is, and in, you get to Genesis chapter 4, and Adam knew his wife when she did conceive. So that it's not just that we are all adulterers for God. But ideally, God wants an intimacy that transcends the intimacy between husband and wife in the very marriage act. That's how deep he wants that intimacy. And to prove your point, the way the Lord is, but the Hebrew word for now, he says, so let us know, let us press on to the Lord, the Lord is the same word for knowing the life of Jesus. Right. I don't you have a deep, deep connection with you. All right. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father. We give you thanks for this wonderful lesson. A lesson that we may have heard before, but we need to repeat it to ourselves. For true knowledge comes through repetition of what we already know. We know that we, like God, are all sinners. We do not deserve grace, restoration, or any type of salvation. And yet, while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to us, just like Jose, to redeem us. Well, for this, we give you praise and glory, and we delight in your presence, and we seek to ever know you deeper and deeper every day. All this we pray in the name of your son and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode, and remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace, and on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.